If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to the glass noodle. You may be glass only in name, but our love for you is crystal clear in every Bibigo Korean dumpling. Your tantalizing texture tickles the taste buds, and while you are see-through, the world can't help but see you. The glass noodle, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every plump and juicy Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. On episode 146 of Confessions of a Marketer, Love Marks. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. Kevin Roberts, former CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, is in to talk about Love Marks. A great book and the very definition of the big idea. Coming soon, Catherine Hayes on the future of advertising, Michael Mathias on retail, plus in the weeks ahead, Henrik Becker, Zenia Montan, Dave Woodward, Larry Ludwig, and Naira Perez. Lots more in store. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. All right, on to Kevin Roberts. If you've been in the marketing world over the past couple of decades, like me, you've marveled at the work Kevin has overseen. One of his ideas, in fact, the very definition of a big idea, Love Marks, became a book about the future beyond brands. On the back of the book, he describes the idea, and in these uncertain times, it really resonates. It goes like this. The idealism of love is the new realism of business. By building respect and inspiring love, business can move the world. Kevin and I had a broad-ranging discussion beyond Love Marks, starting with his background. Let's get to it. Kevin, it's an honor to have you on Confessions of a Marketer. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm stoked. So to say you've had an illustrious career, I think is something of an understatement. Can you share your career path and maybe some of your secrets to success? Well, hopefully it's not over. (laughs) (laughs) I want to look forward rather than uh, than backwards. And I haven't had much of a career path. It's been more a set of circumstances, opportunities, luck. Making happy choices, Mark, I think is, is the core of my of my career, making happy choices. So uh, I guess, I think it was John Wooden who said, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Right. And so I think the most important thing you need in a career path is a lot of luck, but then make sure you're prepared, make sure you're ready, make sure you're hungry, make sure you jump at the opportunity. You don't let it go past you because they come from all angles, all times when they're least expected, right? Yeah. 
So the idea of career planning and, and, and you know, and, and being able to sort out your life is one that has never been particularly appealing to me. I think it's much more about having a personal purpose, figuring out what your dream is, since most of us have forgotten how to dream, mm. since we had it knocked out of us by school, parents, peers, social networks, college, jobs, right? Yes. Most of us now. The list goes on. Yeah, life goes on, you know. We live, we, you know, we survive, we scratch those Darwinian urges, and then we die. <laughs> so I think having a dream, I mean, Martin Luther King didn't stand up and say, I have a vision statement or a mission right. statement. So I guess it starts with personal purpose. Know who you are. You know, I mean, you go to Greece and you go to see the Oracle Delphis, and there it is. First, know thyself. Yeah. And I think most of us don't have that personal purpose, so life sort of happens. Whereas if you have a personal purpose, a framework of beliefs, your focus, your spirit, your dream, at least when these opportunities come up, you have some framework to judge them against and not spend your time thinking, overthinking, doing SWOT analyses and all this stuff, by which time the opportunities moved on. That know thyself, you know, is a really important leadership skill, don't you think? It strikes me that the best leaders know where their skills end, know what they're good at and know what they're not good at. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the difference between management and leadership fundamentally is management is about doing things right and leadership's about doing the right things. Mm. Great companies need both those things and great leaders Ensure that things are done right, because if you don't do that, you don't survive. But the leaders that make the difference also ensure that they do the right things. And this idea that, you know, you we have born leaders and you're either a leader or you're not, it's just pure nonsense, right? Because every one of us is a leader. We have to be because we're responsible for our own destiny. So, if we don't take ownership and take leadership proactively of our own happiness, our own life, our own destiny, we're going to be very average and very dissatisfied and we're just going to be making up the numbers rather than leaving footprints in the snow. So I do, I, I agree. It all starts with personal purpose. First know thyself, figure out who you are, what your spirit is that makes you, I mean, I'm a radical optimist, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the spirit when I was at Saatchi was nothing is impossible. So figure out what is your DNA, your very essence, then drive it to a focus. My focus is make happy choices. You know, I don't want to spend my life doing stuff to please others. I want to take responsibility for my own happiness first. And in that way, then spread that and share that with everyone I touch. My dream is to inspire everyone I touch to be the best they can be. Yeah. Hence this podcast, right? And I do think it's about personal accountability. It's about, you know, as the Marines say, never being out of the fight. We got a pretty crazy world out there now, and it's kind of threatening in many, many, many ways. And you've got to really keep calm and carry on, as it were, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because otherwise, that's what I wrote on my blog yesterday. And I think it all starts with what you're saying. It all starts with purpose personal purpose and then a company purpose. And you got to be able to get all that on a page, not just a load of 
corporate words and meaningless stuff, but the stuff that actually counts and matters. And once you have that, you're going to have hopefully five or six careers, right, right, in the world we live in. Yeah. And people are living longer, so why not do more things? Yeah, and do different things, right? Learn new skills and keep moving, keep traveling, keep fail fast, learn fast, fix fast, man. Fail fast, learn (laughs) fast, fix fast, right? You know, welcome failure, learn from it and fix the thing all very, very quickly. And you're going to live a very fulfilling kind of life and have a great career and be in demand from companies, from startups, from unicorns, Mm -hmm. everywhere, you know, is going to want that kind of I'm still standing mentality. I mean, the next three months are going to challenge everyone of us with this uh, coronavirus. And it's going to be about Winston Churchill, it was, I'm sure, who said, when going through hell, keep going. Yeah, don't stop. (laughs) Yeah, don't stop, man, because this isn't going to go away, right, until probably June or whatever, when I think there'll be a vaccine out, et cetera, et cetera, and temperatures will be in our favor and we'll have solutions. You know, the human race is incredibly resilient in terms of finding innovative solutions to problems, but the next few months are going to be tricky for everyone. Yeah. So I want to focus, you said, focus on things that matter. I want to focus on your concept of love marks and the book of the same name. First off, can you tell me and my audience what a love mark is and what the future (sighs) beyond brands is? Yeah, well, I wrote this in 2005 and I was driven originally by fear because at that time I was six years into running Saatchi and Saatchi, you know, which is a pretty good advertising agency, very creative. Mm Mm-hmm. We had about eight, 9,000 people at the time. We're agents of the year, a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. I worked for Procter & Gamble, Toyota, Novartis, Visa, Sony, all these General Mills, kind of Lexus and so on. And I had a horrible feeling that brands were being commoditized incredibly. Own label was taking over. There were the first signs of, you know, internet activity and I had a feeling that brands were reaching the end. They'd had a good run for maybe 100 years, and it was all going to come to an end. And what would follow seemed to – and I talked to Alan Weber, who was then the editor of Fast Company, which at that time mm-hmm. was the most innovative, creative, mind-blowing, rule-bending kind of – publication out there when people still read magazines and i said to alan listen i you know he was from boston and he came down to see me in new york and i said i got the answer to what's going to follow brands and he said that's why i've come to see you what is it i was very excited and i told him the answer was trust marks Mm -hmm. and i said you know you've got to trust is the most important factor in any relationship and we don't trust big brands anymore we trust our label, Naomi Klein, and all this stuff. We will trust sooner or later. I didn't know at that time it was going to be Amazon, but a big retailer. And the trust is gone, so it's going to be about trust marks. He got up and left my apartment and I said, that's the most dull, you know, I'm really disappointed. Thank you very much. Yeah. And left. So I was pretty gussied by that. You know, I had a you know, I don't know, 20-page article and I don't know how many PowerPoints backing up the idea of trust marks. I was all alone in my Tribeca apartment. So I opened up a bottle of Bordeaux, as you do, (laughs) and started, you know, 
commiserating that, you know, my wife was away in New Zealand. Alan Weber, who I admired, had just dumped all over my great idea. Nobody loved me. And as I was jotting that, I wrote, I drew a heart because I'm never without a piece of paper. And I drew a heart and I put Mark next to this heart. And then I opened the second bottle of Bordeaux and don't remember anything else. And then (laughs) went to bed. Anyway, woke up next morning feeling a little groggy and then went into my dining room where I'd been doodling and there it was, this heart and mark. And it was, it was just plainly clear, man. The greatest emotion of all is not trust. Trust is a foundational element that you must have before you fall in love. But in the end, there is no greater feeling than love. And it just spewed out of me. I just started writing, writing, writing about love and about brands that I loved and countries that I loved and restaurants that I loved and what love meant to me and what was the difference. And before I knew it, the day had passed and all night and I had, I don't know, 30, 40 pages of rambling stuff, but it was exciting, right? It was exciting. So I immediately got on the phone to Alan. I said, you went home too early. You (laughs) you know, I got it. I got it. And he said, well, I'm not coming down to you again, so you better come to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there you go. So I shot up to Boston that evening, and we met in some kind of Irish pub, very Alan Weber-like and very Boston-like. It was pretty good. And I exposed to him love marks. God love him. He said, okay, we published in 26 days' time. I'm going to give you the cover and an eight-page spread. Now, in Fast Company, that was, in those days, unbelievable, even though the magazine was 500 pages. Yeah, it was thick. Boy, it wasn't right. it? Remember how thick it was? Yeah, it was like a doorstop. Exactly, okay? And I thought this was the greatest thing because if you're trying to write, the best thing is to have a promise and a deadline, right? Because yep, yep. without either of those two things, you just keep revolving around ideas, no? So I had a deadline and I had a promise, and now I had to go and get some better thinking. So I went to work, and Love Marks was born out of the belief that great brands are built on respect. They're built on all the things that Kotler and Co. talked about, all the things that P&G and PepsiCo knocked into me for 20 years, you know, and all the Kotler stuff of product, price, all the stuff that you know back to front and all that stuff. And it wasn't enough because we were being threatened by on label, being threatened by the internet, being threatened by competition. I did the classic two by two graph, fad, commodity, brand love mark, high love, low love, high respect, low respect. And it was so easy, Mark, to do. You could intuitively put Nike where you felt it fit, put Adidas where it was, Converse where it was, put British Airways where it was. And then Immediately, you could start tracking the journey that these brands were going through, where Starbucks was going through, where Fast Company itself would go to, where the brands that we had, Toyota, Lexus, Tide, Head & Shoulders, Olay, Pampers, were. And it was like, wow, man, this is breathtaking instinctively and intuitively. Now I need some research, some data, some metrics, but I don't have time, so... You know, the first article is going to be about the idea, which is what Fast Company was. Right. And then we'll flesh it out as we go. And so I put a bunch of researchers onto it and started testing theories and frankly just came up with, you know, 
pretty much 20 kind of things that a brand offers you all that stuff, right? The right product at the right price in the right packaging with the right performance in the right distribution. And it is massively vulnerable to innovation, to competition, to own label, to all kinds of stuff. I love Mark is beyond all that because you add three things that we discovered through research, mystery, sensuality, and intimacy, which are the difference between having a solid girlfriend and marrying a man or a woman or whoever you choose to marry. You marry them because you respect, trust, believe them, and you love them. Yeah. And obviously love. At that stage when we wrote it, I mean, it's become a huge thing. I don't know, 400,000 hard Backs 20 languages. It's taught in 5,000 universities around the world. It's been reprinted in Mexico 10 times, Brazil 9 times. I mean, it's a great thing. Be- at that time, though, people thought I was crazy because they were talking, oh, you mean love bites and hickeys and you can't bring love <laughs> into. But it was endorsed straight away by Procter and Gamble and Toyota. So as soon as you had PMG, Yoki Ishizaka, who was at the head of Toyota at the time, said to us in a brief when he'd understood all this idea, good, I want you to turn Toyota from the most trusted brand in the world to the most loved, which is where Prius came from, for example. It's where the design came from. H.G. Lafley turned every brand into Procter Gamble on its head by moving away from functional purpose, benefits, and attributes and adding mystery, sensuality, and intimacy. So it was really created out of desperation, burning platform with a strong pushback from Alan Weber, from a publisher, and strong support from the CEOs of two huge companies. I don't think we could have made this work up through brand management and marketing management. It was a top-down idea. It's a big idea, right? It's the mythical big idea. Yeah. Yeah. So I've spent most of my career in B2B marketing. And I kind of think B2B is bullshit, but but (laughs) there you go. That's and the reason I think that is because people make decisions about brands based on visceral feelings, right? And that's where love marks comes in. I buy Toyotas pretty much exclusively because I love the brand and I love, I love, you know, you get in the car, it's not flashy, but boy, you can love something that's reliable, right? I mean, that makes Camry the biggest selling car in the US. I mean, it's, it's deliberately not flashy. It's when you don't have to talk about it. You just, first of all, it's a great brand. So you trust it. You have respect for QDR, quality, durability, reliability, and then you love it because it's understated. It's who you are. You don't have to make a song and dance about it. It's understated, and you really, really feel for that. Yeah, it's it's very cool. But I think across, you know, B2C, B2B, people are realizing that it's people who make decisions. You don't sell to a business, right? Mark, I should travel with you all the time. You just feed me the best lines. So <laughs> for some time, I've been saying now to B2B and B2C is nonsensical language in today's world. It's P2P, yep. people to people. And we're in the people to people business. And I don't care whether that's insurance or whether it's banking or whether it's supply or whatever. You make your decisions on whether you trust, believe, respect, and then whether 
it goes a little bit further that you actually love being with these people. You love their products. You love their values. You love their purpose. Of course, love for your parents or your nation or your pets is different to loving a brand. But the world uses that term for something bigger than like. You know, when you love something and it is taken away from you, boy, that really hurts. When you like something and it's taken away from you, I mean, you try taking away a great lipstick from the Mac range or whatever, and boy, oh boy, you are going to feel some pain. It's not a volume story, but for those people who love that shade, they are going to go to the ends of the earth to make you bring it back. Yeah, I buy a certain brand of sneakers. I've got large feet, and I buy a certain brand of sneakers, and they make a certain model that they discontinued, and I was just beside myself. (laughs) Oh, boy, yeah. You know, they make one that's one model up from it, but it's not the same. There you go. And that's a love mark for you. You know, whatever the brand is, it's bigger than a brand, and you feel, and that's the role of marketing today. I mean, marketing is no longer... Marketing as I knew it at Procter & Gamble and Gillette when I was working there in Pepsi-Cola, that kind of marketing's dead now. The whole, you know, creating demand and, you know, the trucker stuff of mm-hmm. creating customers and stuff is all accurate, but it's not – it's basic table stakes now. So I think the role of marketing is no longer to build a brand. It's to create a movement, to create a movement, you know, and – You do that through all the tools that you now know are all available to us because people want to belong to something bigger than themselves and their own lives. They express themselves in maybe the sneakers that they wear or the pens that they use, if they still use them, or certainly the phone that they use. You know, I mean, Apple is a love mark to many, whether it's functionally ahead or below Samsung doesn't, or the pricing is not really relevant. People just feel connected to the Apple family, the Apple tribe, and what he says about them, and they love that. I've done work with Starbucks and with Nike in the past because it's a journey for these brands. You know, you can track Nike's journey from probably fad to brand to love mark. Then it dropped to a commodity when it had some of the problems, you know, a few years ago with some of its athletes and with sweatshops and so on. And then it got itself back on track again you know, with terrific design from Mark Parker's team and great advertising and strong community links. Starbucks, you can see that many, you know, it started as just sort of a commodity. Italian coffee became a brand very quickly, was driven to be a fad through, you know, the whole yuppie thing that you will probably remember. Then it became a love mark to many. And then they, you know, how it sort of left the ship for a little while and let managers run the place and they went after volume and they opened up on every street corner and they pushed the baristas back and introduced a lot of funny food and it almost became a commodity again. And now, you know, they're going the other way to bring back the love for Starbucks. So it's a dynamic journey for marketers to constantly just like falling in love is you you know, you've got to re-energize that and refresh it every day and you've really got to connect with your prospects in the places they're available and in the mood to be connected with right so all the old tools that i was using as i was growing up in this business they're kind of redundant now they're not maybe not redundant but they're not close enough 
or connected enough. Consumers want, they don't want to be marketed to anymore. They want to be in the game. They want to be in the story. They want to be in the design. They want to be in the movement, right? They want to participate. It's very exciting, I think. Oh, yeah. Very exciting. So let's talk about a couple of parts in the book. The first chapter is titled Start Me Up. Love the Rolling Stones, so I, I dug into this chapter. And it features lessons that you have learned. The one that jumps out at me, and maybe the one that's hardest to master because we live in such a copycat society, is zig when everyone else zags. How do you engender that idea in people you work with? Through uh, having a shared purpose. So everybody has to have the shared purpose. If they have a different purpose, they won't know. They won't have the courage to zag, right? But if you have the same purpose, it starts with that. Secondly, if you have a culture where failure is rewarded if it's fixed, not punished, people will fail fast, learn fast, fix fast. They will culturally thrive. But everybody's got to practice that, including the head of finance and the legal people and manufacturing people, right? That we've we've all got to share that deep cultural value that the fastest way to win in today's book of world is to fail, learn, and most importantly, fix dramatically. So it's still in many companies, it's not whether you win or lose that counts, but how you place the blame. And we got to move out of that blame, punishment. Performance should be looked at in the context of the critical success factor for a business person for marketer today, in my view is how agile and fast he is at failing, learning, and fixing. Because now you know, when I was younger, you know, it it cost you quite a lot to test stuff, right? You had to go to test markets, you had to do lots of time, you know, you couldn't really replicate or stimulate. Now the technology and the connectivity is so great that you really can learn very fast if you're open. Failing's important, learning's important, but the most important thing is fixing, right? You cannot hang around and have meetings and have endless management by consensus and endless, you know, exploratories, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to have a framework, decision-making process, mental toughness. You've got to be a great active listener. And then you've got to do all that this week, <laughs> right? And you need that culture. So that's, if you have that culture, And if you hire people, I've only ever written one equation, right? And that is success in today's crazy world is a combination of IQ plus EQ plus TQ plus BQ, all powered by CQ. Okay, so what's that? Well, it's IQ. Obviously, you know, you shouldn't be hiring Muppets, right? There's no excuse for not hiring smart people. But the IQ I'm talking about is business IQ. And we used to measure that at Saatchi simply on the basis of a 100-point score on one's ability to fail fast, learn fast, fix fast. And that became your business IQ, okay? EQ is your emotional quotient. Anybody now, thank goodness, can learn a lot about consumers, prospects, and competitors through the tremendous big data phenomena, okay? So we can learn a lot about what consumers or prospects say and do. EQ is figuring out how they're feeling, So it's not what they say or do that's the determinant for me. It's how do they feel? I mean, everybody said they were very happy with the Sony Walkman. Everybody said, you know, that they liked the innovation. Morita and the Sony team were busy with 165 innovations. 
And then out came Steve Jobs with the iPod and then ultimately iTunes and Hello Spotify and so on. Not a single consumer in the world knew that they wanted 10 million songs, that they would pay a subscription, that they wouldn't own a single physical record or CD. And you've got to be able to figure out empathetically how the world is feeling because the world is always zigging. So you've got to feel when it's ready to zag. TQ, technology quotient, you are either at the mercy of the weapon of mass distraction, your mobile, and spending you know hours upon hours of the day reading alerts and all this kind of nonsense, or you're using that as a tool to create a movement. You're either locked into your screen and never out in the jungle anymore, or you're If you want to figure out how a lion hunts, you can either go to the zoo or the jungle. But if you're in the zoo, you're not going to find out the answer. So that's TQ. And B, so it's intelligence quotient, emotional quotient, technology quotient, and BQ, bloody quick. You (laughs) (laughs) You got no time to do this. All powered by CQ, which is creativity quotient, right? We live in the age of the idea, ideas are the currency of this crazy world, good, bad, or ugly. And we've got to have a place where creativity, not just innovation, where creativity, which is a step before innovation, flourishes. That's how you're going to zag while the others zig. Pretty hard. Yeah, yeah. And it's easy to say, right? But it's harder to do. Oh, man. And it needs commitment from the very top, huh? Yeah. You cannot bottom up this stuff. You've got to have an engaged CEO, an engaged CFO as well, because they can become, you know, the abominable no man if you're not careful. Yeah. So you've got to have the leadership team on the program. It's hard work trying to do it from the bottom or the middle, very hard from the middle. But it's very common. I've worked in a lot of marketing groups inside of companies. And it's very common. The first thing that a CMO or a CEO says is, well, what's our competitor doing? What's, yeah. Right? <laughs> right. Yeah. There you go. Right. Right there. Right. That, and then the whole room gets distracted with the wrong question. Yeah. And how do we know that's even working for them? Yeah. Never give the customer what they want. Give them what they never dreamed possible. Right. That should be the start of every meeting. You know, yeah. Lexus would never have become the biggest selling luxury car in the U.S. if it had just tried to follow an outflank BMW and Mercedes. They'd have been a poor imitation of two you know, incredible German engineering machines. Yeah, this fascination with competition. I, I mean, there's three kinds of changes, right? Disruptive, transformational, and incremental. Great leaders, great marketers have got to, play with each of those. They've got to have tactics and strategies in each bucket. You know, if you're a successful company, incremental change, Kaizen, the continuous improvement, Ginshi Gibutsu and all that stuff is a vital thing on 75% of the business. There are some areas, though, that you've got to transform to get faster growth, to win market share. And there's a couple of things in your mix you probably should be thinking about disrupting before Amazon does it to you. Yeah. I want to talk about mystery. In your chapter called All I Have to Do is Dream, you talk about mystery being a key to the relationship with consumers. Yeah. So why do consumers crave mystery and get Ah. so little of it from the companies they patronize? Yeah. First, it's a human, real human emotion, right? The more you know about something, 
the more boring it becomes, right? If you're married for a long time, you know you've got to keep refreshing that relationship. You've got to keep making it exciting. You've got to change it up. You can't take it for granted. So the more we know about something, the less interesting it is. We want to be excited, stimulated. This whole binge television, the whole phenomenon of the amazing dramas that are now being produced through the studios and through the streamers, man, it's unbelievable, right? Mm. We're going to watch seven series of stuff. We used to just watch one movie. Now movies are real struggling because people want to be part of a story that goes for 40 hours. They want more mystery. They want more brilliant. Rolf Jensen, who was the... CEO of the Institute of the Future, there's a great title to take into a bar. And uh, he, um, he said that the heroes of the 21st century will be the storytellers. I think he's almost right. I think the heroes of the 21st century will be the story sharers. Right. We don't want to be told a story anymore. We want to connect with it, collaborate with it, just see. I do a lot of work with Fremantle, the TV production company that does America's Got Talent and X Factor. And I think three of the most watched videos of all time are from those two shows because the mystery, who's going to win, why they were going to win, what happens next? You know, the debate's no longer taking place just on TV. It's taking place on every screen that you have in front of you because we want to be part of that movement. We want to have a voice. We want to have a point of view. We want to be listened to. We want to have alternative endings. We want to love or like different characters. So mystery is about story sharing. I think too much marketing in the past has been functional benefits, right? And it's been driven by what I call the ER words, bigger, whiter, faster, cheaper, Mm -hmm. all this stuff, okay? And really, it's the stories that make Nike big or make Adidas big, depending which brand you feel closely attuned to, right? It's the stories behind the product attributes that make the difference today. I think people today want to be, are driven by sort of three C's. They want to connect, they want to collaborate, and they want to create. And they want to buy brands that allow them to do those three things. Yeah, wow, this is such a great discussion. I could go on for hours. I want to talk about some love marks in action. And I think I just, I was going to ask you about Olay, and maybe we can talk about that. But I'd like to talk more about Lexus. Lexus is a contemporary brand. I think it was started in 1989 or 90, something like that, and came in with, you know, an amazing ad campaign and they built a brand in what felt like nothing flat right but it had to be we've been the agency ever since lexus Versace or team one which is Versace sub right has been with lexus ever since the get-go yeah and it came in you know in the you know whenever it was early 90s late 80s and seemingly overnight became established as the you know luxury brand and can you tell me any stories around that, about how that came to happen? Critical thing was we all, I mean, the critical thing was the product, okay? You know, yep. product, product, product. I mean, the performance of the product was understated, low-key, absolutely superb. We killed competition in tests, okay? It was a product-driven, first of all, you know, good old marketing, you got to give them a better product. The pricing was sensational. We originally were more productive, more efficient, 
and more local than Mercedes and BMW. So not only did we have a product edge, we had a significant pricing benefit. We then had a tremendous focus on dealers. My God, it was almost impossible to get a Lexus dealership in those days. You had to be never give the customer what they want, give them what they never dreamed possible. So we had a dealer network that was colossally personal, bespoke, well-trained, motivated, and empowered to just, you know, you take your Lexus, if you, I don't remember in those days, but you take your Lexus in for a service and you'd come back with a bunch of flowers or a bottle of champagne. Right. Right. And so it was a combination of product. It was amazing, amazing, amazing distribution stuff. And then we came up with a line and it was one of those things. The line was the relentless pursuit of perfection. And it was, first of all, a rallying cry to everyone involved in Lexus production and manufacture. It engaged the shop floor, unbelievable, because they stood up, the shop floor guys, and said, hey, you know what? We're the ones on the relentless pursuit of perfection. It's not the managers. It's not the bosses. That's us. So the workforce took this unbelievable pride in that line. We established the brand really as a strong brand, but we didn't We weren't able to make it in a love market. In 2005, we were given the brief to add more emotion into the brand. So we changed the line for a couple of years to the from the relentless pursuit to the passionate pursuit of perfection. Mm-hmm. You're a marketer, so you'll know that's a bigger thing than, yeah. than it sounds, right? And as soon as we started claiming passion, the dealers had more passion, the workers had more passion. Consumers felt that they were able to show more passion for their car rather than just keeping it quietly in the garage. It became more than a doctor and a lawyer's car. And coupled with that, it drove the Lexus designers to produce passionate designs. If you look at Lexus now, you know, and you look at the the sporty, the models, the SUVs versus 15 years ago, you can see we moved from trust to passion. Yeah. Now we've gone back to the relentless pursuit because the job was done. And frankly, the engineers were, a Toyota management was so motivated by that notion of there is no best, only better. Yeah. And we will relentlessly pursue it that they claimed it back again and said the passion's there now. So now we're going to go back to relentless. Hey, pretty exciting. Yeah, that's for sure. So where do you see Love Marks going? What do you think the future of Love Marks is? Well, I tried very hard. Um, I would like to see them used politically. Mm. Because if I look at this farce that's going on now in the United States where it seems you have to be 77 years old to run for (laughs) office, okay, and be completely out of touch with everything, irrespective of party. And I look at this primary with people spending $300 million with nothing to say and running, you know, (laughs) wow. I mean, I I would love to, you know, this is, I think uh, President Trump got elected the first time around because of Make America Great Again was an emotional call to arms 
whereas Mrs. Clinton's stronger together was a meaningless piece of drivel. Yeah. Right. And she lost the unlosable election. And now you see these guys, you know, any democracy needs a strong governing party and a strong opposition party. And I'd love to have seen them embracing the idea of love marks. In fact, I spoke, I was asked to actually speak to one of the presidential candidates four years ago about that. And I predicted that Make America Great Again was going to be very difficult to beat. Yeah. Just as a as an emotional idea rallying call to arms. So I'd like to see Love Marks, you know, going into and not only in, in the US, but in the UK, where you have, you know, similar Brexit nonsense going on and left and right, everybody moving to stress differences rather than coming together for the nation. Yeah. So I think in the political arena, we've had some experience with it when we're at Saatchi in different countries and it was compelling then, I think it would be even more compelling now. But you would have to have belief, authority, and honestly, somebody who was, you know, who was part of today's zeitgeist, i.e. in their 30s somewhere, I imagine. I mean, this is, it's a strange situation, isn't it, with, yeah. Yeah, and it's, I guess in politics, you know, the, the person who can distill an idea as simply as possible tends to get elected. You yeah. know, you can look back over the last, you know, 50 years of presidential elections and the ones who were able to distill something Absolutely. in a few words. You know, I go back to Carter, Reagan, yeah. you know, the first Absolutely. Bush, the, you know, if you can distill a message really cogently, you're likely going to win. Obama did that in 2008, right? Uh, Unbelievable. He's a classic yeah. example of it, right? You know, yes, we can and all this stuff. I mean, it was just terrific, right? And he, he engaged the youth. I'm not sure he delivered on the promise, but at least he was able to capture people's spirits and give them something. He created a movement. Yeah. Yes, and he created a movement, right? Yeah. And President Trump did the same thing in parts of the country with his claim. And I can't see. So I think, you know, Love Marks is now being taught across, as I mentioned, 5,000 schools all around the world, I think. And wherever you go now, unlike 2005, brands are talking about love. It's, it's, it's in their promises. They, it's in their social networking. It's the rise and rise of Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So I think on the one hand, the theory, the idea, and the initiative has been outlandishly successful, it was certainly very successful for us as a creative agency for a long time, new business tool, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's a good thing, and I think it's relevant in today's environment because we are so connected emotionally that it is powerful and already believed, it's become almost foundational. The trick is for advertisers, clients, agencies to execute this in a way that allows you to fail, learn, and fix, that allows you to use EQ, and that we don't use the metrics, the KPIs, the data to batter the idea early for a brand in its time, right? Because nothing... We live in the age of the idea. Ideas are our currency, but nothing is so hard to keep alive as an idea because it's an, an idea is an idea only once, right? Which means it is difficult to prove. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. And so it is easy 
to come up with lots of reasons to kill it, the abominable no-man I talked about. <laughs> and I think the challenge is for people are not staying in their jobs long enough. They're not being measured against the right things. Leaders are not leading. I think top management in most places is driven by shareholder, creating shareholder value, not by delighting consumers. I don't think it's driven to nurture creativity, innovation, obviously some exceptions, but generally the business of doing business and creating shareholder value takes precedence over creativity, innovation, and delighting prospects and customers. And it's pretty tough, I think, if you're a mid-level marketer to get emotional traction for your brand approved by the powers that be. Yeah. On the back of the book, you write, The Idealism of Love is the New Realism of Business. By building respect and inspiring love, business can move the world. And that's quite a thought to end our discussion with. Yeah. And if not us, if not business, then who? Yeah, exactly. Well, Kevin, thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoyed our chat. Okay. I'd love to come back and talk 64 shots and leadership. So if anybody listens to that and wants more, <laughs> absolutely, they can I'm willing. All right. Next time, Catherine Hayes, Beyond Advertising. So stay tuned. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time.